turn with me please in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Beginning to read with verse 5, Acts 2, 5. I believe it would be better to begin with the first verse in order to catch the complete picture. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was now come, or fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as of fire, and it sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound was heard, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own language wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, in Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and sojourners from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and were perplexed, saying one to another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and spoke forth to them, saying, You men of Judea and all you that are dwelling in Jerusalem, be this known to you and give ear to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that. But this is that which has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, says God, I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my servants and on my handmaidens in those days will I pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, 
blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord come, that great and notable day. And it shall be that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the Apostle Peter continued in his preaching to show them the verification of the Messiahship of Christ through the resurrection of the dead. And then in verse 33, he makes this statement, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. Again now then, let us join our hearts together and ask the Lord to help us in the ministry of his word. Our Father, we feel our need of your help directly, and we lay our requests before you. You have told us that we have not because we ask not. And so, O Lord, we now ask that you may give the help that's needed to the minister of your word, that he may preach with courage and clarity and in conformity with truth, and that those who hear him may be given by your spirit receptive, humble, tender, and obedient hearts. And Lord, we would pray that you would teach us through these things who you are, and what you are doing and have done and will do. Instruct our minds and our hearts that we may be renewed and transformed by the renewing of those minds, that we be not like those among whom we live, a crooked and perverse generation, but a people clearly marked by the presence and the life and the ministry of the Lord the Spirit. O oh God, these things are higher than we. Help us to understand them according to your goodness and grace and will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll continue our study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit this morning with these words from John Owen who told us that the Holy Spirit is the operator and the efficient cause of everything excellent among men, whether extraordinary and above natural principles or ordinary in improving these natural principles. So Owen has said that whether the Holy Spirit is working in extraordinary supernatural ways or merely in ordinary ways of improving the ordinary natural principles, he is the operator and the efficient cause of everything excellent among men. Now that's a drastic statement. It's a statement that we're not readily prepared to receive because of our ignorance of the Holy Spirit. 
We're not utterly familiar with him in such a way that this statement immediately sets on our minds as conducive to our understanding of Scripture. We've not given him that high view and that high position. We have tended to virtually to ignore the Holy Spirit either in response to the perversions of our day and other days or because it's so difficult to grasp who he is and what he does. We'd rather not have to think about it. But he is, and it is a true statement that Owen has made, the operator and efficient cause of everything excellent among men, whether it's extraordinary or not. He, as we have said before, finished and put into order the original creation. He, the Holy Spirit, continues to oversee and govern that creation through providence. It may be said that everything God has done, God the Spirit is the finishing touch on it, the completer of it, the polisher of it, the adorner of it. He, as it were, puts in the windows and the doors and the trim and the paint and the wallpaper and the final floor layers and all the, the furniture and the, the appliances, all the stuff that makes the house run and work and function. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. In creation, he brooded on the face of a creation that was without form and void and the implication there is it was his ministry that perfected the creation of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created the world. God the Spirit is seen most, most frequently as the finishing toucher of all of God's work. And so it is in the new creation, under Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that we have said is the applier of Christ to the believer, without which his saving work is nothing and useless to us. Christ came from the Father and accomplished our redemption. The Holy Spirit comes and finishes that work in application to us and prepares and equips all of that saving purpose and work in its final functional form, without which it's all for naught. You see the point. Everything there is, creation, providence, salvation, the Holy Spirit is operating in it and is the efficient cause of its perfection. That's what Owen was trying to say. Now what we've done so far is considered the person and begun to consider the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're considering the work of the Spirit now as to the instrument of his work. We saw the matter of his work as being that of administering life and all that goes with the administration or the ministry of life. We noticed that the basis for this ministration of life is through righteousness. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of another. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ground on which the Spirit grants or brings about the new creation. He ministers life to the spiritual dead on the ground of the righteous accomplishments of Christ whom he applies to them. But now we're considering in the third place the instrument by which he ministers life and that is essentially the preaching of Christ. He is the officer in his prophetic sense of proclaiming Christ. In his applying Christ to the church, he is, as the scripture summarizes, 
preaching Christ. In the face of Christ, the Holy Spirit is liberating those under the bondage of their spiritual death. Then last time, in the instance of preaching Christ or the instrument of the Spirit's ministering life, we notice the nature of this preaching as being essentially conviction. And we saw in John 16 how that the Holy Spirit was coming into the world in the stead of Christ to convince, to reprove, to put to the proof to the world the sin of the world in its unbelieving of Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ himself as a person and in his accomplishment and in his establishing righteousness in the name of God and judgment because in his death for sin, in his establishing and bringing in everlasting righteousness, he judged the prince of this world and stole from him and despoiled from him his captives in salvation. Now, we, if we may summarize that entire sermon on his convicting work, we would say that the Spirit of God is teaching the world the issues that grow out of the person and the work of Christ. Every one of those threefold convicting works has as its orbit Christ himself. Sin, because they believe not on me. Righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Judgment because in my dying and resurrection the prince of this world is judged. And so he is in the world preaching and reproving the world in the instance of Christ and in regard to Christ. Now this morning I want us to elaborate in a bit more detail this work of the Spirit in applying Christ to the world or may we say in preaching Christ. And the way I want to do it is to look at, in the first place, at the history and the methodology of the Holy Spirit in teaching and preaching Christ to the world. The history and the methodology of the Spirit. And there are three aspects of this history that I want us to consider today, if we can. First of all, the preparation for Christ's coming. In other words, we're going to examine the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in a summary fashion. The reason we want to do it is because there are very important questions that come to the minds of believers about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament in contrast or in comparison with his ministry in the New. And so this morning I want to help you understand his ministry in the Old Testament as it relates to Christ, because it did relate to Christ. What he was doing was preparing the world for Christ's coming. In the second place, the Lord willing, we will consider his confirmation of Christ's coming at the point of the entrance into the world of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the preparation for his coming, and then as the new is unfolded, the confirmation of his coming. And finally, if we have time, in the third place, we'll look at the, the elucidation of Christ's person and work, or the opening up, interpretation, and proclamation of what Messiah has done in his person in salvation. First of all, then, in the first place, as we get, get this overview of the history and methods of the work of the Spirit in preaching Christ, let us examine 
the preparation for Christ's coming in the Old Testament. And I'm dividing this up, helped immensely by John Owen and others, into three parts. And this does not exhaust everything the Spirit did, but we will deal with the more essential part after we've considered these three. Three parts of his work in the Old Testament whereby he prepared for the coming of Christ. The first, the work of prophecy. The second, the work of the Scripture. And third, miracle. Prophecy, Scripture, and miracle. In preparing for the coming of Christ, the Holy Spirit brought to the world in the Old Testament the ministry of the prophet. Now, I want us to examine briefly and in some summary fashion the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. Before we can do it, we need to explain what prophecy was and is. Prophecy is two things. First of all, it is predicting. Predicting things that God is going to do in the future. And most people think of prophecy in that narrow Context. Most people hear the word prophecy and they assume that all we're going to consider is what's going to happen in the future. Our, all the last 150 years of Christian history has focused upon this aspect of prophecy. You hear the word prophecy, you hear a prophecy conferences, you know that what you're going to be taught is something regarding the future. There's going to be somebody standing up telling us what's going to happen in the future. Well, that is a valid element of prophecy. But the second aspect of prophecy, and the more particularly appropriate and typical aspect of prophecy, is this. Not merely prediction, but also proclamation. Essentially, a prophet was one who declared the mind of another. And in, for our purposes, the mind and will of God. A prophet was an interpreter of the word of God. That's what the word literally means. That doesn't mean that he took God's word, changed it, fit it into his own culture and setting, and put it in his own terms and thought processes and idioms, and, and adapted it from generation to generation as he saw fit. It literally means he took what God said and said it to God's people in a way they could understand it. That's a part of all the provision of prophecy. But essentially, the prophet was one who declared the mind and will of God to others. Now, you, the reason we know that is because Aaron is called the prophet of Moses. He was going to be Moses what? His mouthpiece. Moses said, I can't talk. So God says, all right, I'll let Aaron do the talking. You tell him what to say. He'll say it. He'll stand as your interpreter. He'll be your mouthpiece. And the same terminology is used there that defines the prophets who represent God. They come in God's place speaking God's word to God's people or to others who may not be God's people. So that's the essential essence of what prophecy is. But I want us to consider two things about it. First of all, the subject of Old Testament prophecy. And second, the means of its supply. First of all, the subject of prophecy in the Old Testament. And to do that, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, brethren, I must say, it may be, maybe it's helpful to you if I'll say, this, this sermon is primarily a teaching sermon. It's filled with instruction. It, some of this material may not come across as 
uh, preachy as you might expect or want. Maybe it doesn't sound evangelistic at the beginning. Perhaps it would not feel uh, like a Sunday morning sermon. But we're teaching high and holy things which are necessary to be learned if we're to have confidence as to our position regarding the ministry, the person, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in an environment in which there's such confusion uh, at this point, all the more you can learn from Scripture, the less vulnerable you will be to some of these very believable and difficult arguments that come your way from some sincere and sometimes very impressive people. I want to establish in your mind a clear, comprehensive understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe it will do you much good in the days ahead. First Peter chapter 1, <coughs> the subject of Old Testament prophecy, verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, concerning which salvation the prophets <coughs> sought and searched diligently. Now, <coughs> why did the prophets seek and diligently search to figure out this salvation that has now come and been revealed to us in the New Testament? Why would they know about it? Why were they seeking it? Why were they searching it out? What, where did they learn about it? We didn't know until Christ came there was such a salvation, did we? We didn't know that God was saving sinners through the death of his son and his resurrection and his session in heaven until he came and did it, did we? Or didn't we? And that's the issue. They were searching out something that God had revealed to them. Read on. Who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. What was the central theme of their prophecy? In which a New Testament apostle, when looking back upon their ministry, when he draws out from their ministry one aspect or example of it, he draws this one. When he's thinking of the prophet's life and ministry, the thing that stands out is they were preaching the grace that was going to come to you. That was the theme of their prophecy. Then he goes on. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did point unto. So the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was in them pointing to something. They saw him point and they wanted to search it out and understand it. They went into it. It was fascinating to them. Their hearts were, were pricked by it. Their lives were consumed with it. The Spirit of Christ in them pointing to something. What was he pointing to? Verse 11b. When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. What was it the Spirit was saying to these prophets that so stirred their curiosity and so enveloped their livelihood into diligent searching out to figure out what's going to happen, how is it going to happen, when is it going to happen, what manner of time. Well, the Spirit of Christ was in them, pointing to the grace that was to come upon the people of God in the future, and that grace was found in two things. The sufferings of Christ, 
the Spirit of Christ was teaching the prophets that somebody was going to come, Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, was going to suffer for his people. A central theme in Old Testament prophecy is the future sufferings of Jesus Christ. And the second aspect of the Spirit's message to those prophets and theirs to the nation were the glories that would follow those sufferings. Not only is he going to die, he's going to be glorified. In his death, he's going to divide a portion with the strong. He's going to lead captivity captive. Isaiah 53, Psalm 68. When he dies, he, the death cannot hold him. The pains of hell cannot keep him. He will not see corruption, as David prophesied. He will be raised from the dead and raised up and seated on the throne of glory. The Lord and his anointed, his king against whom the heathen raise their heel and sneer the lip. So the prophecy was, not only would he suffer, but there would be glories to follow those sufferings, crowning those sufferings with everlasting success so that the Old Testament prophets could tell us that the Lord, our righteousness, will bring in everlasting righteousness and the, the things that cause us to whimper and moan under the taskmaster now will no longer be our concern. The Lord is going to send a Savior and is going to suffer and deliver his people. Now, it doesn't matter, brethren, that most of Israel did not anticipate the sufferings of Messiah. The prophets did, and they preached them. The Spirit of God was in them signifying Christ's sufferings and Christ's glory. I pray tell ask you, why would not Peter have pointed to some other issue of their prophetic message than this one? Why is this the one that 1 Peter 1 focuses upon? Because I submit it was the essence and the central theme and subject of Old Testament prophecy. To foreshadow Christ with his sufferings and his glory. But there was a second portion of the prophetic work which the Spirit did. And we won't go to all the texts of Scripture to prove this. You won't need them. But in the midst of preaching Christ, and signifying the sufferings and glories to follow, and it's a part of the same theme, but we, we separate it just for clarity, he appointed the divine worship in Israel of old. It was the Holy Spirit that showed the clear pattern to Moses about the tabernacle, about all the elements of worship. It was in detail. You recall all the care that God the Spirit went to to point to Moses how to direct the worship and the assembly, and the life of the people of God. Well, what does that have to do with Christ? Well, it has everything to do with Christ. The temple, the prefiguring of the presence of God among his people through the Spirit by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. The temple, the place of God's habitation with his people. And what do we read in Ephesians 2? That God has become the inhabitor of his people, the body of Christ, through the Spirit, by virtue of the blood of the cross, which broke down the middle wall of partition and made us of two, of two men, one new body. The Spirit of God appointed divine worship in the temple. He appointed the priesthood and was careful to show exactly what the priesthood was supposed to do. What does that have to do with Christ? 
Well, the priesthood had the duty of ordering the worship, of interceding for the people's sins, of making sacrifices for the people's sins. What does that have to do with Christ? It has everything to do with Christ. It was the Old Testament foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice that God had prepared from the foundation of the world for the sins of his people. And so in the prophets, the Holy Spirit was ordering the whole nation of Israel, and in everything they did, there was something to be said of Christ and his coming and his work and his sufferings and his glory. The sacrifices were required under the Old Covenant, specifically laid out by the Spirit of God to the man of the Old Covenant, because the law of God had been broken and the blood shedding was necessary to cover their sins. It was all designed to prepare them for Messiah to come and shed his blood as the Lamb of God to deal with their sins forever. You see, their chiefest privilege in the Old Testament was to behold, though dimly, a better day ahead. A better land, even, than the one they had. You're, you're not unfamiliar with Hebrews that tell, tells us that Abraham did not seek a country in this world, but a heavenly country, a city which has foundations. It states explicitly that those Old Testament saints, in their heart of hearts, were not content with a piece of real estate on the Mediterranean. They were looking to something better than that. And the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I believe verse 40 at the very end says, God has provided some better thing for us that they, without us, would not be complete. They died not having seen clearly and grasped in their hands all that we now have. They died in anticipation. They lived and died awaiting something better than the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, whatever you want to call it. They lived and died with a hope beyond that, a heavenly hope, a spiritual confidence. That's how they could live in the midst of what they lived in. That's how they died in faith, because there was more promise to them, and they understood it in the ministry of God's prophets, a better land which they saw afar off. Let me just give you one scriptural example. Turn to Isaiah, chapter 33. <coughs> Isaiah 33, 17. Just a little piece of prophecy dropped down the middle here, but I think summarizes what I'm trying to say. Their chiefest privilege was to behold through dim eyes a better day to come. And that day was centered in and saturated by the Son of God. Isaiah 33:17. Thine eyes shall see the King in his beauty. They shall behold a land that reaches afar, or a land that is very far off. The Old Testament mind and eye, which was sensitive to the prophetic ministry of the Holy Spirit, lived for a day in which he would behold the glorious face of the King whom God had set in Zion, and he would see a land up close that now he could only see far off. I, I believe that this passage is a direct reference to the concept of Hebrews 11. They sought an heavenly country, 
a city whose builder and maker is God. The essence, the central theme of Old Testament prophecy was Christ in his foreshadowing, in his coming to suffer, and in the glories that should follow. And they lived with gladness to hear these glad tidings of future messianic deliverance and blessing. This strengthened their faith while they waited for the Lord. He that waiteth upon the Lord shall renew his strength. He shall run and not be weary. He shall walk and not faint. The young man shall faint. All that trust in the flesh, God's going to rip away from them. The Lord took away their confidence in Egypt's chariots, their confidence in Babylon, their confidence in Persia, their confidence in every human arm of flesh. The Lord took all of it away, their confidence in the rocks and the stones of the temple, their confidence in the walls of Jerusalem, their confidence in their religion, their confidence in their righteousness. The Lord obliterated all of it so that their eyes would be prone to lift and look to a provision from God in the future. So the subject of Old Testament prophecy was Christ, just as it is the subject of New Testament preaching, Christ. Though not as open, not as flagrant, not as explicit, not as full, not as thorough, but it still provided the matter of the Spirit's work in prophecy. But the second aspect of Old Testament prophecy that we need to consider is the means of its supply. How did the Holy Spirit produce prophecy in the Old Testament. And brethren, we could spend a long time on this. We will not. But just say two things. First, inspiration. Inspiration. Please turn with me again back to 2 Peter. In the New Testament, 2 Peter, chapter 1. How did the Holy Spirit get men to preach things about one who was going to come in the future whom nobody ever heard about or thought about. How did this happen? How could they preach the sufferings and glories of Christ though they barely understood them, though they spent their lives searching to figure out the timing of it, etc. How did they even know that there was such a thing to come? How did Isaiah get what he got? You read Isaiah, you're reading the gospel. Especially the last third of the book, it's, it's one of the most astounding sections of gospel preaching you'll ever study. How did he come on such stuff? Did he just sort of float around and was this a soothsayer? Not hardly. No, the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1 of Second Peter, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. In other words, there is no prophecy that you'll read in the scripture that was made up by the individual prophet. He was not the source and the author of it. It was not his own personal slant on things. It was not his own individual theology. You would not compare the theology of Isaiah with the theology of Jeremiah as to consider which one was the more truthful or which one was the more appropriate. Uh, it's no private matter. No. Verse 21 says, For no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Well, by what did it come? But man spoke from God being moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. Literally being acted by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, 
that the Holy Spirit supplied not only the ministry of prophecy, but the words themselves. They spoke from God, just as certainly as Aaron said what Moses said to say. They spoke from God. But how? They were borne along in their speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now that's the doctrine of the Scripture. Now look at three parts of this inspiration. And of these, we can thank Mr. Owen again for suggesting some of these. And I just submit them to you for your consideration. First of all, in inspiring the writer, the preacher, the words, there is an elevation and a preparation of the mental faculty. The Spirit dealt with the man's mind. He prepared it, and he elevated it, so that it would be able to think and to communicate his mind. He confirmed their memories to retain what they heard, so that when they preached or wrote, they might be faithful to it. He gave them light to know what they were saying. They were not ordinarily writing and speaking in ecstasy. It was not the characteristic of prophecy, never has been that men speak not knowing what in the world they're doing. You know, the picture is not some fellow that's out of control, wobbling around the room, frothing at the mouth, jumping over the pews, babbling things, and a minute later can't remember that it even did it. What, what happened? That's not the picture. The Spirit of God dealt with their minds to grant their minds the ability to comprehend what they were saying. Now, obviously, not comprehend everything they meant by what they said or all the significance. We're told explicitly they didn't comprehend all of it. They knew it had something to do with future restoration and deliverance. They knew it had to do with an anointed king. They knew Messiah was coming. They knew he was going to suffer. They knew there was going to be glory to follow. But boy, it was cloudy. It's very similar, may we say, in kind to our own picture of heaven. Isn't it? What do you know about heaven? <coughs> We've got the scripture on it, don't we? But we do see through a glass dimly. We do see through this clouded uh, window. And it's, uh, it's all fogged over. And boy, you, you scrub a little away and you look out and it's very... It's, the things are in a distance and, they, and they're not real clear to be made out. And by the time you look a little bit, the fog's over it again. It's a difficult thing. And that was the way it was with them. But they were not speaking in some sort of mindless ecstasy. They knew what they were saying. They knew the sentences. They knew the words. They understood the significance to some degree of what they were saying. They knew ahead of time. They knew after they finished. They would be able to quote back. How else would many of them have preached and written the same thing? They weren't just the kind of robot that you might in, in, uh, assume or infer from this business. They were not just uh, bodies walking around not even knowing that they were doing. They weren't computers. A computer doesn't know it's a computer. But a prophet knows he's a prophet. A machine doesn't know that a man is telling the machine to do something. The machine is just a piece of the stuff that happens to spit out what's given it. The prophet, though everything he said was exactly God's word, knew that was the case. He knew that what he said was the word of the Lord. And you'll see that phrase throughout the prophets. They were conscious of it. 
They didn't understand everything they were saying, but they understood the words, the syntax, the structure, and the intent. They comprehended it. These were not nuts. But not only did the Spirit elevate and prepare their minds, but he also acted upon their faculties. To speak not there, but his conceptions. He worked upon their faculties. He gave them infallible assurance that he was in control. They had the full boldness of heaven itself when they preached and when they wrote. They were writing God's words. They were preaching God's words. The Spirit of God acted upon their will, upon their affections, upon all their faculties to bring this assurance about. They weren't just dallying about with vain hearsay and idle gossip and endless genealogical interpretation. They were preaching from God and they knew it. But in the third place, in inspiration, he guided their bodies or the members of their bodies. In Psalm 45, the writer says, the psalmist says, I have my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The psalmist was conscious that his tongue was in the hands of God the Spirit just as surely as a fountain pen is in the hands of the person writing it. Now let me say to you that you may hear in your reading or you may run across it in preaching some of the theory that says that the writers of Scripture were not uh, penmen, were not uh, just instruments in the hand of God, but that the writers of Scripture were had their own ability to sort of do things through their own channel and interpret things and write in their own thoughts. And God sort of suggested the idea and the thought and then left it up to the guy to put it in the frames that he wanted. A couple of problems with that. The main one is the Scripture says the words were breathed of God. That's the biggest problem with that. You have to deny one passage of Scripture in order to support that theory, and all your theory goes down the tubes if you've got that kind of a lack of integrity where the Apostle Paul, having been given a thought and a suggestion by God, then forms that thought and that suggestion into the theology that says he breathed the words, and then we decide Paul was lying. At what point is Paul then to be trusted? The Scriptures teach that the words were dictated by God. Breathe is a better word. Not even dictated. Not telling a man, here's what I want you to say, and then the man remembers the gist of the theory and goes and puts it in his own words. The words are God's words. My tongue is like a pen, ready to speak what another is putting through it. Just as a pen is in the hands of a writer writing nothing other than what the writer wants written. That pen is putting on the paper with its ink precisely what its writer wants on the paper. No more, no less. That's the tongue of the psalmist as a prophet. The mouths of the prophets, it says in Luke chapter 1. The mouths of the prophets spoke God's word. In Acts chapter 1, the mouth of David, God, it says, God used or spoke by the mouth of David. God is speaking, and he's using the mouth of David to speak. Why? Why doesn't God ordinarily just speak with his own mouth? Well, would you hear him? 
would you be able to understand him? Probably not. You are not put together at this stage in your development to understand words from God directly from his mouth. They would kill you. Your ears are better fixed to hear man speak and the tones and the sound waves. And they go into your ears and they make registration on your nervous system and you're through the mouths of the prophets. David even said in the pattern and the, of the temple in First Chronicles that God gave him, he says, His hand was upon me to, do, to light, lay out this pattern for you. The very pattern came from God's hand on the body of David to say what God wanted it to say. Now, why do we go to such lengths to tell you this? I just want to firm up again in your mind what the scriptures are and what the prophecy is. Is anybody awake? Does anybody care? I'm going to preach it anyway. You're sitting here, half of you look like you didn't sleep last night. I'm going to keep on preaching and love you just as much. I feel very sorry for you because I feel the same way you do, but I get to stand up and sweat and the blood flows. Wake up. Get with me. This stuff is important. Satan will test you on this business. Somebody's going to challenge the theory of inspiration in your lifetime. Some well thought through theologian, some reformed Baptist, and let me tell you how he's going to do it. The New International Version of the Bible possibly the growing most popular version among reformed speaking people states in its introductory and preface comment that the, that the theory of Bible inspiration and Bible translation that they adopted to translate and publish this Bible was not the theory of word for word translation but the theory of dynamic equivalence that, equip, that theory means that they took the words of the scripture, thought the best words, and then learned what that statement meant, and then turned the words into uh, sentence structures that might be better received by an ignorant and sixth grade reading level of a people in the Western world. They, their theory is stated, and if you'll read a book that's coming out by Professor Bob Martin, uh, which researches it and establishes the principle. I believe you'll find uh, this principle clarified. The idea is to take the concepts of Scripture that are truth and the Word of God, but change the wording to suit the culture. Now that sounds fitting, because every translation by definition is required of this. Be very careful, brethren, before you defend yourself against what I'm saying. Do some research first. There are two prevailing theories of Bible translation. This is one, the dynamic equivalent. The other is actual equivalency, word-for-word -word equivalency, translating with the idea that the words of the Greek are God's words, not just the thought. There's a vast difference between the theories that the words are God's words and merely the thoughts were God's thoughts. The theories can lead and often have led and are already leading in debates among Reformed people to the implication that you can take words in the Scripture that God did not particularly care about in themselves as long as you can get the thought. And when a certain word is used in the Scripture that sets bad with me, I am at liberty to say, Surely, this isn't what God had in mind. 
And if you have any knowledge of church history, you know that this is the beginning of complete anarchy in the Word of God and the very worst kind of imaginable doctrines that will take the very gospel of Christ itself and wipe it off the pages of history. It is not accidental that such a translation would have become the most popular in our generation. I'm not saying it's not a translation that can be used. I've used one. I have one on my, on my desk. I am saying it should not be considered a standard biblical translation. It is not standard. It does not follow the rules of standard translation history. i just let you know that. Our children use it in our Sunday schools because Great Commission uses those, that text. But I suggest to you that if you want to memorize Scripture, memorize Scripture that was translated with the theory of word-for-word inspiration, not thought-for-thought dynamic equivalency. And I I ask you, please, before you gainsay what I'm saying, that you research it and investigate it perhaps further than some of you have. I'm simply saying it's critical to understand the Spirit spoke by the mouths of men as though a man were writing with a pen. Some don't like that. You know why they don't like it? It takes power from man and gives it to God. Some don't like it because it sounds magical, sounds weird. But dear brethren, what in the creation is not weird and magical to the unbelieving heart? Everything God does is weird and magical to a man who doesn't believe God. What we're saying is that everything we have in our salvation was done by God the Spirit. It comes from God. These are God's words. He prepared for Christ in that way. How did he communicate? Sometimes he communicated to these men with an articulate voice, as in Exodus 33 when he spoke to Moses face to face. Sometimes he communicated through dreams, as he did to Abraham in Genesis 15. Sometimes through visions, as in Isaiah chapter 6, either to the eye or to the mind. But in all these various means of communicating, the Spirit of God is seen to be the author of Old Testament prophecy in preparing the world for Christ. In the second place, he not only is the author of prophecy, the preaching and the prophets, but the scriptures themselves. Now this issue goes into the New Testament as well, and when we come to the confirmation of Christ's coming, we'll see the principle of Scripture. The writings themselves, as we have said, were breathed of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that the men of old spoke as God breathed the words. Every Scripture is given by God's breath and is therefore profitable. He inspired the minds, he suggested the words, he guided the hands of the tongues. And I would simply say and rest my case on the former comment that though some would say that the matter and the substance were given by God but not the words, that once you start down that road you will end in biblical oblivion. It's not, you see, some say, well, it had to be this way. How do you get all the variety in the scripture? Here's the way the same instrumentalist playing different instruments. The music is the musician's music. But he uses different instruments to produce the music. You can play the same song with several different instruments. 
and it sounds different coming from different instruments. So the Spirit of God incorporated in his inspiring work the personalities, the language, the understanding of his instruments. And they are seen coming through his work. The unique characteristic of the writer is seen in his writings. You can see the difference in the style of Paul and the style of John and the style of Peter. Does that mean that therefore God didn't speak the words and they, they weren't under God's hand when they spoke and wrote? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the great musician, as it were, is singing his song through different instruments and getting the same result. And you glorify God for being able to do such a thing and not locking him in to having them all sound like robots. The Spirit of God includes man's thought processes in inspiration. You say, well, here's a man who speaks in his own grammar. That's right, Simon Peter's grammar is known not to be a very high Greek grammar. St. Paul writes some of the highest Greek you can ever read in some of the longest sentences, and a Greek scholar can really have fun with St. Paul. And you can go with Paul, and then you go to the book of Hebrews, and you have a whole other kind of style. It's a wonderful way that God's done it. What does that mean? God sort of just says a few ideas and leaves it. No, God the Spirit included their style and their grammar and his inspiration and chose the words that would be readily suitable for them in their expression. It is God that's behind this. That's the point we're trying to say. Your Bible is a product of the Spirit of God. And the Old Testament scriptures are just exactly that according to 2 Timothy 3. They were privileged to use their abilities. They were even privileged to choose words. But they always chose the words the Holy Spirit wanted them to choose. You say, well, that's double talk. I, I don't care what it is. It's, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 10. It, Jesus said every jot and tittle is going to stand until, the, until it's all fulfilled. I mean the very breathing marks and diacritical marks to the smallest thing, the yokes and the tittles. The Lord is considered to be permanent as God's authoritative word. So brethren, don't fight this principle. Please be careful about this. This can destroy your soul. Do not rest the scriptures. And don't even start on the way. But not only did the Spirit of God grant prophecy and the scriptures in preparation for Christ, but also he utilized miracles. And I'm just going to give you a brief statement of miracles in the Old Testament. A miracle is something that is beyond and above natural causes. It is uncommon. It is extraordinary. It is not a miracle for a baby to be born, brethren. It's a wonderful thing, but that's not a miracle. God has written that into the natural causes. Don't use the term miracle for that. It's not an accurate term. It's not a miracle that... Uh, uh, that a, a truck uh, barely missed a kid on the highway. Uh, somebody turned the steering wheel. And God uses all those ordinary natural means and accelerates those means and gets involved in those means to get people to turn the truck and the steering wheel. But don't call that a miracle. A miracle is when God acts either going beyond, above, or bypassing his natural creation. When an arm has been cut off and the Lord Jesus restores it whole, that's out, that's out of nature. That's impossible. Things don't, arms of people don't grow back. Lizard's tails do, people's arms don't. When the Lord restores an arm whole, that's a miracle. And the Holy Spirit utilized miracles in the Old Testament. Immediate acts of the Holy Spirit. Even it says Christ worked his miracles by the Holy Spirit. 
Men's mouths were timed by the Holy Spirit to predict the breaking up of rivers, the stopping of, of seas. Men's members were became the organs of the Spirit, raising rods up to part seas, all sorts of things. But there was no natural power in those men as such. It was the power of God in every case. That's what a miracle is. What was the purpose of miracles? Not to establish in Israel a miracle working group. Not to provide a means of making an extraordinary living because men had uh, more crowd appeal. Not a way of getting a bigger hearing on the television set so that we could make uh, have the biggest church in town. But they were given to confirm the message and the messenger. Essentially speaking, miracles in history have been employed by God to confirm the message that God was giving to his people at the time. If that is not the case, you need to struggle to answer why that miracles have not been ordinary and normal throughout the history of God's redemptive work. If the miracles are for the purpose of delivering people, then in a sense, if, if miracles become ordinary, you can't call them miracles anymore. If the ordinary way that God works is over and beyond nature, then you have to ask why then create nature anyway? What are we doing living in ordinary means and expecting ordinarily extraordinary intervention. Well, we don't expect extraordinary intervention ordinarily, and we're accurate in our expectation because a simple cursory view of history will show us it hasn't happened that way. Why? Well, it's happened in times of history when the message of God needed to be confirmed. It was a token of the presence of God among his people, but it was always subordinate to the work of revealing and declaring the mind of God. The miracle has always been subordinate to the work of revealing and clarifying the mind of God. Turn briefly to Exodus chapter 4. And I know, brethren, I can see it's a struggle for you this morning. These days I never understand them, but we believe that in season and out of season we will teach and that God will honor his word. Thank you for bearing with me. Exodus chapter 4, verse 8. It shall come to pass, if they will not believe you, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe even these two signs, neither hearken to your voice, that you shall take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which you take out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. What is the Lord telling Moses? He's saying the people probably won't believe you if you just go tell them you're going to deliver them by the power of God. So I'm going to give you two signs that you can perform. Try the first one. If they don't believe that one, try the second one. If they don't believe this one, then take water, pour it out in the sand, it'll become blood. That ought to get it. The idea is that the extraordinary, supernatural bypassing of nature by God's direct intervention by the hand and mouth of Moses is designed to confirm Moses' right to be claimed as the leader and the mediator of God's people. He's coming as a deliverer. And so extraordinary miracles are provided in his ministry during those days. The plagues and all of that that God did to show that this indeed was God saving his people. You could say the same thing in the New Testament that we'll deal with very briefly later, that when the Lord Jesus came, miracles came. 
and the apostles as they were establishing the identity of Christ and Messiah, miracles came. After all that was established, confirmed, and set in concrete in history, the scriptures were completed, miracles as a major emphasis backed off. Are we saying God no longer would or could work miracles? I will not say that. Are we saying, though, that the church ought to be trumping up, planning, promoting, expecting, preaching, looking for, practicing, ordinarily, miracles? We're saying, no, she should not. She's missed the point. We don't need any more miracles. We do need the Spirit of God. We do need to believe the Bible. We do need a church filled with people whose hearts love Jesus and not themselves. We do need mercy and peace and righteousness among the people of God. We need the presence and the power of God in our preaching, in our studying, in our laboring in the office. But we do not need miracles ordinarily. And if we ever need them, we shall have them. We may trust God with that, may we not? Most of you have gotten through your whole life so far without any. Does that make your faith wane? Well, our faith is not in miracles, but in the God who, whenever he pleases, can work them. And who will when he needs to. The miracles were employed by the Spirit to confirm. I'll show you in the New Testament how this is true. If you'll look at Hebrews chapter 2. And then we're going to come quickly to the close. Because this is all foundational, but it's necessary in my opinion. In the preparation for the coming of Christ, the Spirit has used prophecy, scripture, and miracles. In the confirmation of the coming of Christ, the Spirit has used prophecy and scripture and miracles. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed to us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. If you look carefully, this has the sound of a past tense sort of thinking. This has the tone that God has supplied in those men and their immediate followers who were confirming the testimony of Christ, miracles and extraordinary provisions as a way of testifying that what they were preaching is true. The signs that came on the day of Pentecost that we read about. Why? First, to get the attention of the mob, and second, to confirm to the mob something is up here. God's doing something. What does it mean? Peter then explained it from Joel chapter 2, interpreted, said this is that, extraordinary. It's the work of the Spirit. It comes in conjunction with the preaching of Jesus Christ raised from the dead, which was also extraordinary. It must be that Jesus is Messiah. Brethren, what must we do? The purpose of the Spirit in that day and the extraordinary manifestations of this thing of preaching the gospel, speaking the great things done by God in every language under heaven, which the Old Testament said would happen, the purpose was to confirm Christ and the gospel so that you would believe on Christ. And when you believe, you would be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Isn't that what it says in Acts 2.38 and following? A subject we'll take up in detail in a short period in the future. You see, these miracles and signs and wonders have always been subordinate to the work of revealing and declaring the mind of God and essentially the mind of God in redemptive purpose. Moses in the deliverance of Israel, Elijah and Elisha in the time of the decline of the kingdom and God's coming judgment upon them and as a means of, of, of securing the validity of the prophetic ministries so the nation could be preserved till Messiah came. Daniel and the three Hebrew children and a few things during that period as guarantees that the prophetic message of the coming of Messiah and the restoration of the people of God was indeed true. And then Jesus, John the Baptist, worked none. Did no signs. Jesus did. And the apostles did. And some acquainted with the apostles apparently were able to have certain gifts of the Spirit that they were operated in the early forming days of the early church. Why? To confirm that what you're seeing happening in the message of Christ dying for sinners in the establishment of the church of Christ as the kingdom of God in the world is indeed the work of God. The Holy Spirit is here to give evidence of it. Now you all know that that doesn't satisfy anything in one sense. Unbelievers, though you raise one from the dead, won't believe. But it's a sign, nevertheless. It's a sign that will produce stumbling for some, but it'll help others. Brethren, I think, I think that it helps to read what Jesus was able to do when he raised Lazarus from the tomb. I think it helps me believe upon him as the Son of God when I read the signs that John records. And that's what John says. These are written... These are not continually performed, he wrote in the latter part of the first century. We're not out here running around the churches continuing to do them. We're writing them. We're recording what happened in recent history so that you may believe and in believing have eternal life. That's the purpose of the miracles and the, and the signs. To secure and confirm in the heart and mind of the people that it's God at work. It's the same thing then that the Spirit does in the confirmation of Christ's coming when the Lord himself came. Now let us contrast this just briefly with the ordinary gifts that all the saints through all the age have. Brethren, we're not saying there are not ongoing gifts in the church and that the Spirit is not operative anymore. We're not saying that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Holy Spirit is still working, is still operative, and still supplies gifts to man beyond what they were born with. The Holy Spirit involves himself in preaching and in all sorts of service in the church. The Holy Spirit supplies men with gifts. But not the revelatory gifts, the ones in which men get a direct word from God and then tell you and you're bound to believe it. One of the tricks of men who didn't study, who don't know what they're talking about, but who want to get a hearing, who do not want to submit to the authority of the church, will be to say, this is from God. That's one of their tricks. They'll write a little piece, they'll send it to you in the mail, and they'll say, the Lord spoke to me and gave me this. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this vision. Let me suggest to you, they are barking up a bad tree. They're not only stating that the scriptures themselves are not sufficient, they're implying that you have left the work of the Holy Spirit and you're out here listening to the voice of men. I dare ask you, if it is indeed better not to listen to men but listen to the Bible, suggest to you you not read their little printings. 
because that's the voice of man. You might even want to mention if somebody tries that with you. Well, since you don't believe we ought to listen to Calvin, we ought to listen to the Bible, I certainly, if I can't hear Calvin, don't want to listen to you. Call the bluff. Look him in the face. You believe a man shouldn't listen to man, only listen to the Bible? What are you doing opening your mouth to my ear? Please, honor me. Practice what you preach. Do it. It'll save you a lot of hassle. And let me tell you something. If you get into debates with these people, you're not usually going to win the argument. If they really were interested in dialogue, they'd be here considering the things you're hearing too. Don't make deals with them. I'll go to your church, you'll go to mine. You're a fool if you do that. You're being led down the primrose path if you do that. Why would you want to go to their church? Why do you, why, what's the, do you have reason to believe the Bible's not preached here? Well, that's one thing. But if you have reason to believe you're in the place God puts you, why do you make deals with people? Don't do that. That's a trick. The Spirit of God is not ordinarily working miracles today, but He is working and giving gifts to men. And I believe every Christian has supplied the Spirit to serve the church and to serve Christ in the church. I believe there are, every one of you has things that the Spirit of God has put there. You need to stir it up, you need to cultivate it, and you need to use it. It's, it's a misnomer for a Christian to be considered one who's in the church but not doing anything serving in some capacity. And I'm not talking about singing in the choir, all sorts of ministries and Christian ministry that God has laid out. Well, finally... I want, to, I want to introduce the third broad statement. We have spoken of the preparation of Christ's coming, the confirmation of Christ's coming, but the third one is the elucidation of his coming, and this is going to make up almost the rest of our whole study because we're going to see how the Spirit gave the revelatory gifts, how he gave the Scripture, but then we're going to deal with this whole doctrine of the indwelling ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament and in the New and under this principle of the indwelling of the Spirit, or the gift of the Spirit, we're going to study all those items that you come across in the Scriptures. Adoption, justification, sanctification, regeneration, all, the, all those words, earnest, seal, pouring out, baptism, filling, all of that stuff that makes up most of the discussion of our day will come under this discussion of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. And we shall see in that how our definition will be completed. That the Spirit of God is ministering life through righteousness by means of the preaching of Christ unto conformity to Christ in the church. And we're going to see the, the church as being the product of the Spirit's application of Christ being conformed to Christ and all the service mechanism going on in the church at the hands of the Holy Spirit. It is my goal that there not be left in us any spirit of disunity, of withdrawal, of not being available to serve, of not being ready to serve Christ, as not grieving and, and quenching the Spirit by our unwillingness to give ourselves to His service, it is my desire that we would have our minds so confirmed to the truth of the Spirit that we would not be confused, that we'd be able to defend ourselves against these who ask us the question, does your church believe in the baptism? Does your church have the Holy Ghost? Does your church believe in the gifts? Does your church believe in prophecy? Does your church believe in tongues? How do you answer those questions? You don't really want to answer them, but you'd like to help the person, and you'd like to be able to answer it in short form, but with concrete biblical support. That's part of my goal in laying this before you. Now, 
Let me just say this by way of conclusion, and I trust that you'll bear with me in leaving it off at this stage. I just think that I'm, I'm teaching a congregation today that would be served if I would leave you here and hope that you'll keep this and build upon it next time. There is a unity and there's a diversity between the work of the Spirit in the two covenants, in the Old Testament and in the New. And that unity and that diversity may be summarized as follows. In the Old Testament, all believers had the Holy Spirit. They indwelt them. He regenerated them. He was attending their salvation and their lives. It's the same in the New. There's unity in that sense. However, in fact, we read, Enoch walked with God. What does that mean? If it wasn't the Spirit of God. Uh, the David said, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. And God speaks of the Spirit in those terms. However, in the New Testament, there is diversity in that the Spirit indwells not just individuals in the nation, but the entire nation of God's people, the church, and he indwells them profusely. There is a new Israel, and corporately the entire Israel is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that's where the diversity comes. We'll consider that, and we'll study that as we enter into a biblical survey of the Old Testament work of the Spirit, the New Testament. What I'm saying is that it's not that the Holy Spirit didn't exist in the Old Testament and that they were saved somehow apart from his work. That is not the case. They had the Spirit, the true believers did. But in the New Testament, there's a proliferation of the glory of his work and there's a great profusion of his work in a way in which it had not happened before. Jesus breathed the Spirit on the apostles one day, did he not? But he had not yet been given. Did not the Spirit come upon men in the Old Testament at times? And did not he dwell with men by their own testimony throughout their days? And doesn't the doctrine of regeneration tell us it must have been the Spirit of God who helped them mortify sin, who helped them put to flight the armies of the aliens, who helped them have hope, and even with the gospel not clearly preached to them, have men act in the way Abraham acted, leaving his home and going to a place he'd never seen and living his life to the day he died by faith in something he never grasped in his hands. Who but the Spirit of God did that? Who followed them in the wilderness? What drink did they drink but the drink of the Spirit of Christ? What rock uh, fed them water? What manna but the Spirit? Well, the Spirit of God was there. It, was, it didn't just show up all of a sudden. However, the measure of his outpouring and the explicit nature of his work is much more radically and profusely opened up in the New Testament because when Christ ascended, then the evidence of that victory and that confident success in his ministry was shown in this unprecedented pouring out the Spirit without measure, not in little sprinklings, but so coming upon the corporate body of the universal church. That's all there was to the Church of Christ that day on the day of Pentecost. There weren't 43 churches. There weren't three different denominations. There was one universal body of Christ, and they all happened to be together on that day, right there in Jerusalem. It's grown and spread out now. But the universal church of Christ existed that day in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon every one of them, on the whole church, in an unprecedented, unrepeatable fashion. The, the difference is in, if we may say it, degree. 
not in kind, and the degree of, of manifestation and lucidity and glory and profuseness. Now, brethren, what we're leading to is this. If David's cry was that God the Spirit would not depart from him, and if he knew that because of the great sin he had committed that that called into question the presence and the work and the profuseness of the Spirit of God which he had learned to love and, and adore, and if his greatest fear was the withdrawing of that Spirit from him as, as his life itself, how much more should be our fear after Christ has come, after he's been raised, after he's been glorified, how much more should we be deeply concerned that we do nothing in a church or in our homes or closets that would grieve or quench the one who is the crowning work and applier of everything God does. Dear brethren, do not be, as some of our homes are, still unfinished inside, with no trim, with the windows not installed, etc., etc. Don't be that way in your life. It is the Spirit of God's work to finish us, to bring us into conformity with Christ. Let us not do him disservice by relegating him to some issue that's either optional or not critical. Dear brethren, this is God through whom alone you will be saved, through whom alone you'll understand the Bible, through whom alone you'll be able to hear preaching and comprehend it, through whom alone you'll be able to raise your children, through whom alone you'll be able to endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in your jobs in this world. It is the Holy Spirit on whom you depend to awaken your heart from your love of sin, to give you grace to mortify sin, to cultivate the virtues of Christ in your life. It is the Holy Spirit How much should we long to walk in such a way that he not be offended and grieved? And how much should we cry to him that he would take up the slack that's left with us in applying Christ? Our unbelief in Christ is going to be changed by the Spirit's work if it's to be changed at all. Our fears of the future, our lack or absence of joy, our lack of confidence, our prayerlessness, our weakness, our uncertainties, our, our ongoing unmortified sins, it all falls at the feet of the work of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Spirit of God. And dear brethren, if there's a sense in any life in this place that He is not at the center of what you are and what you're doing, that He is backed off, then get with it. Beg God to have mercy. Don't accept it as normal. Don't go another five minutes with it. Dig in it. Get after it. And stay there till you know a steady walk with God. Don't beat yourself over the head because Pastor Allen preached and you probably don't fit. Don't assume you're not saved. Go beg God to give you great measures of that without which you cannot live and without which this church is just spinning its wheels. Dear brethren, may God help us to take seriously every word of teaching regarding his work, both in the Old and the New Covenant, and may we be a church that is characterized by the filling of the Spirit, evidenced in purity of heart, fear of God, righteousness, joy, 
and peace. May God grant that to this congregation, and may God help us that we're sitting here utterly dependent, are we not? I can't save a sinner, can you? I can't make myself wake up in the morning loving God. I can't make the Bible come alive to me. I can't get rid of sin. I can't love the brethren. I can't be consistent in my home as a father and as a husband. I can't do anything. As Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Dear brethren, we're standing here completely dependent on one person for our very life and sustenance and existence in the Spirit of God. May we understand who He is. May we comprehend His work. And may our lives be pleasing to Him and filled with His presence and His work. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, you have observed our preaching and our hearing. You alone will judge us at the last day, and we tremble before you. We ask, O oh God, that the Spirit of Christ may sprinkle the dew of heaven on what we've heard, may give grace and patience to your people in hearing it, may give us understanding and comprehension of his work, if for no other reason than to see that everything that is real and precious in the world has come from his hand and his breath. O oh God, in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, against whom we send all our sins, grant to us the knowledge and the presence, the favor and the sweet fragrance, the filling, the working, the plethora of benefits and blessing of your Spirit. O Spirit of the living God, do not look upon us without wearing the glasses of the blood of Christ. Do not deal with us after our own works, but according to the work and righteousness of him whose blood has been shed and stands to cleanse us today. O oh Lord our God, forgive resistance to the truth. Forgive pride in your people. Forgive disunity of heart and mind. Forgive rebelliousness. Forgive unbelief. Forgive coldness and supply it. O oh God, as a church, we bow at your feet, crying to you that your spirit may come and take up the slack that's left by our littleness and our and may make you precious to us. Lord, these very words cannot get to heaven apart from the name of your Son and the conveyance of our intercessor, the Spirit of Christ. O oh Lord, hear our plea, incline your holy ear to our requests, and visit us, and make us to be a people who know and walk in the power of your Spirit. Oh, God, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.